Welcome to the Art of Business podcast. Um, today's guest is a very special guest. Uh, uh, Ruth Millington is uh, the head of careers at Southern Business Institute of Art, uh, and she joins us this summer. Uh, and 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 she's trailblazing already. Uh, she's a, she describes herself as an art historian, critic, and blogger. And she holds a master's in the history of art from Oxford University. Uh, her dissertation has a fascinating title, which we might talk about later: uh, the contemporary fairy tale, Kiki Smith, Paola Rego, and Cindy Sherman. All obviously contemporary women artists. Uh, and and I notice also that uh, Ruth has also studied for a foundation and in art in, in in artistic practice so welcome to the podcast Ruth thanks for being thanks. with us today a nice um, nice spot on the on the foundation course not many people pick that one up actually. oh yeah no that's that quite interests me that you're obviously a practice you can do art yes. maybe we'll talk about that later on as well um so, so just to start um, by asking you a few things about your own interests before we get on to talking about, uh, you know, the art world. Um, what's your favourite city, Ruth, and why? <laughs> oh, this is a tough one. Um, as now I'm working in London, but I still have my flat in Birmingham. And I have to say, Birmingham is my favourite city. And every time the train pulls into New Street Station, I feel like, oh, I'm home and Birmingham's great. It's definitely got a bad reputation, which it doesn't deserve. But I love it for the canals. There's so many galleries, museums, little coffee shops, Digbeth with all the contemporary artists and, you know, more and more studios there. It just feels like a really interesting city that's changing. And there's still work work to do there, which I like about it. And of course, you're you are talking to someone who also went to Birmingham University because you did your BA oh. there, and I did mine there in in um, Latin oh. classical archaeology. And I noticed you did some classics there. Uh, obviously, every, all the tutors will have changed by now, I, I would imagine. But when I went to Birmingham, um, it was you know they've developed the, the the area around the canal. There's been some regeneration in the city centre, and it was unrecognisable to me when I went up there about four years ago again. Uh, but yeah, but I, I, yeah, I, I remember it having you know it's got the Barber Institute, amazing art collection within the oh. university. The art gallery is fantastic. Um, and uh, I was lucky when I was there because I, uh, I'm i a classical music lover and the CBSO had just taken on a young man called Simon Rattle uh, yeah. to conduct in the CBSO. So I used to go and watch rehearsals with him. Uh, oh, yeah, yeah so, no. so it's changed yeah, a lot. <laughs> There's also the, 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 the Lapworth Museum, um, yeah. Yeah. which has fossils and dinosaurs. And yeah, all that stuff. <laughs> oh, I was chatting to the Birmingham surrealist Desmond Morris and he found outside of the museum when he was studying in Birmingham an elephant skull and he took it and he planted it on Broad Street in the city centre and apparently the next day there was an, in the newspapers the headline dinosaur found on Broad Street uh-huh. and everybody was wondering what this was and they played a really great prank and I think you know <laughs> That sort of sums up Birmingham for me. Everybody's slightly bonkers and uh, can get away with things that perhaps in London you wouldn't do. Very friendly people. I had a great time there. And, you know, uh, the folk music scene I used to visit as well in, in the pubs and it, it was just superb. And they, they would get they would get people who were, you know, they'd get very good people. The theatre would as well, the orchestra, you know, the 
classical music from London. So it was it was very, you know, it was a very culturally rich experience. And a lot of people quite surprised when you say that about Birmingham. Yeah. <laughs> For some reason, <laughs> it has a kind of curious sort of negative connotation, I guess, to do with its, you know, industrial past, et cetera, et cetera. Anyway, moving from the town to the countryside, do you like the countryside? And if so, is there a particular kind of location in a rural location that you particularly love? I do like the countryside, but I actually grew up in Bermuda. So I, oh. yeah, I prefer the beach to anywhere else. <laughs> I yeah. Think that counts. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you can't really beat nice sandy beaches of Bermuda. Um, but in the, in, you know, in the UK, I went to Eastbourne recently and I absolutely love it there. For me, that's somewhere that's got everything, really. It's got beaches and yeah. the Town Rock Gallery, Charleston, where the Bloomsbury Group were, oh. um, vineyards. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I love about weekend there. Yeah, it sounds as though you, liked, you don't like to be too far from the sea, which is quite curious that you went to Birmingham, which is about as that's far from true. the sea as you get. <laughs> Yeah, I think it is the furthest place from the sea in the UK, but there are canals, so... <laughs> And what about buildings? Do you like buildings? Any particular building, like in terms of architecture or, or just a building that you'd like to be in? I guess for me, I my favourite buildings are ones that mean something to me and they have there's a connection there more than anything. So I love the Estuary Collection, which is a Georgian building over three floors in North London, just off the Highbury Roundabout. And it's the first museum I worked in. It's a gallery of modern Italian art and they have an amazing futurist collection. There's a small garden outside with futurist sculpture in it and a, a cafe. And it just feels like this amazing little hidden gem of North London. And it's just like another world when you step inside it. And yeah, I love that building for that for, for many reasons and personal reasons. Absolutely. When when I'm when I'm missing the Guggenheim Venice, Peggy Guggenheim's gallery in Venice. I go up to the Esterick and feel as though I'm back in the Guggenheim. Not quite, but, uh, you know, um, both of them, of course, have amazing collection that includes some of those futurist artists. So, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) What about... It's a special special little museum, I think. It's Yeah, uh, London is filled with these little gem museums, isn't it? Um, So moving on from that, what about... Let's go to music first. Um, so, So do you have... Is there? A, do you have a favourite piece of music, or a favourite star, or composer, or anything? Or are you? Do you listen to everything? Well, I have to admit, recently I've got into a lot of country music. Great, <laughs> which people I think are quite surprised about. Um, more sort of modern country than anything, but there's mm-hmm. some really great, great. I'd say female singers at the moment, like Mara Morris or Casey Musgraves. And I just love, I love their work. And I think it helps me to relax after a really busy day. Put some country music on, have a glass of wine, and I'm I'm very happy. (laughs) Absolutely. And of course, we mustn't call it country and Western anymore. Someone told me the other day. (laughs) Oh, why not? I don't know. I I don't know. (laughs) I I, I thought you could tell me that, but obviously. Oh, no. (laughs) Call it country and Western. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, but, and then of course in 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 the UK the equivalent of course is folk music. Mm. I guess. Yeah, and Birmingham has a great folk festival actually. Yeah, no, I remember all of that. It used to be really really good. Um, yeah. Um, so 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 now moving more towards what you're what you've been involved in all your life, that's central to your life. Um, 
a work of art, I know that's really difficult, but could you pin it down to like one work of art that keeps coming back to you as, you know, if I had, if I had to choose something, what would I choose? Desert Island Disc question. <laughs> mm, this is a good question. Um, there is one painting which stands out for me. So when I was, uh, must have been 17, and my art teacher, Jeremy Bornon, brilliant man, he mm-hmm. took um, my A-level art class to take Britain mm-hmm. to see the permanent collection. But there was also a small room then of Paula Rego paintings on show temporary exhibition of her works and there was one painting by her called the dance and there's eight figures in the painting it's um nighttime there's the moon the moon is shining it's sort of like a dream like scene and it shows women at all their different stages of life and some of them are in couples and then there's one lady who's on her own an older lady watching sort of on the edge of the dance watching it and for me this I just couldn't stop looking at this painting. And I think with Paula Rego, she she invites you to make up your own stories rather than prescribing what exactly is going on. So I saw this painting then, and then I, I saw it recently, last week actually, again. I went to see the major Paula Rego exhibition at Tate Britain, and it, it was really moving to go back and see, see this painting again now when I'm working so close by at Sotheby's and it's a painting that has stuck with me and I think a painting that you take different things from as you grow older as well so yeah it's a moving painting and I, I recommend for anybody to go and look it up and look at all of Paul Arrego's work which is fantastic. And that painting is on permanent display in Tate Britain I think isn't it? <laughs> It might be. It was on. It was on display. Yeah. Oh, they, 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 I think they own it, and yeah, then the rest of the works. Yeah. A, Actually, you have to watch what you say now because nothing is on permanent display anymore. In my experience at Tate, they 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 um they they have display changes like every six months, which is a good thing because it brings stuff out of the attic and back into the museum and so on. Uh, but uh, oh, yeah, some artists some artists have been complaining about this recently. When they go and George was saying, "Where are our paintings?" Why yeah, are they yeah. Well, I, you know. <laughs> I remember taking some students down to Tate Modern a couple of years ago, and I, I I was looking up in advance, you know, what was on display, and I thought I, I better talk a little bit about the YBAs, the Young British Artists, and um, where's the Damien Hurst? And there was honestly not a Damien Hurst on display, which which is wrong, I think, <laughs> but <laughs> we might come back to that later. Um, <laughs> um, um, Paolo Rego, yeah, I mean, my 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 main memory of her work is the is in the. You, you must know it, the Sainsbury Wing Restaurant Cafe, which, of course, she did the frescoes oh, yeah. for, uh, which are wonderful when you're sitting there uh, with a view over Trafalgar Square in the fourth plinth, and then you you turn inwards and you see these fantastic frescoes by her. And they, they're really kind of quite site-specific because they're all very early renaissance as are the kind of paint, most of the paintings in the in the Sainsbury Wing. Um, oh, I, love, I absolutely love that cafe for that reason. And I, I recently found out that she was the first artist in residence at the National Portrait Gallery. Uh, and, yeah. that's, and that's when she made those murals, I guess they are, to hang in the restaurant. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so so moving on moving on to your interest in art, uh, Ruth, maybe could, can you think back to the first time you remember being aware that there was this thing called art and how that led into your education? So I remember being at primary school and really enjoying art classes and they were always slightly chaotic. <laughs> there was a lot of throwing materials around. Um, but then I think I, I think I was about 
probably 11 or 12, when an art teacher took me to one side and said, oh, you know, you can really draw and perhaps you should be applying for a scholarship at secondary school. And then that's when I got my first sketchbook and just spent every hour, every day drawing and then painting. And from there, then when I went to the secondary school where this art teacher was, Jeremy, I spent just every moment I could in the art department and I got the bug and I love painting. So for me, the love of art history comes primarily from a love of making art and particularly painting. And so that also, that's why I've got this interest, particularly in figurative painting. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it comes from the need to create and um, yeah, wonder about all these other people and what, what they've created and why and what are the stories behind these pictures. And have you ever, att- have you usually, in, in terms of your own art, art um, is it mainly kind of like figurative art? Because I'm thinking of Paolo Rego, who has remained uh, more of a figurative artist. Um, is, is that true for you as well? That you like what is out there and you like recording it or interpreting it? I actually love painting the landscape more than anything. Okay. Yeah. I think because of the freedom it gives you, and I am particularly interested in colour and a move towards abstraction. So mm-hmm. paintings I, I make tend to be of the landscape, but I do also love going to life drawing classes. And I think, you know, if you want to learn how to draw, you have to you have to go to those life drawing classes. Mm-hmm. That's the best test really in the discipline is there in the, in those sessions and would you yeah. recommend it would you recommend it to any of our listeners who who obviously they're going to be into art uh, but would you recommend you know does it help if you actually know a little bit about making art yourself when you when you're looking at other artists work a hundred percent and I recently did a printmaking class at the Mac in Birmingham and I mean, I've been interested in prints, you know, lino prints and woodcuts. But until I had a go myself, I had really no appreciation for how difficult it is. And, you know, the layering and the careful crafting involved. So I think really to talk about art, it does help if you had a go and really understand the work of art as an object. And I think particularly now, because we see so much on screens as a 2D image, but art is three dimensional. And often I think we can forget about that. So, yeah, I would definitely recommend for anybody to try a life drawing class or a printmaking course and just a short course. I think anything really will help you understand. Yeah. Yeah. When I was studying classical archaeology in Birmingham, I I went and did a a sculptural class where you had to make things 3D 3D figures of clay. And I was trying to copy the Orsay goddess that is this um, beautiful archaic Greek statuette in the Louvre and uh, it just makes you realise how really difficult it is to work in three dimensions yeah. as well yeah and then and then getting a scraper board and um, realising how difficult it was for the, the the early black figure Athenian vase painters to you know they, they put the black paint on as you know and then they incise it with a metal stylus and that gives mm. the muscular and drapery detail and it just helps you to understand when you're looking at those things and appreciate you know the the, the incredible skills behind behind the work um maybe we could now talk a little bit about uh your uh, oh I, first i was going to ask you um does was classics a kind of important thing to you as it remained with you a, a sort of love of the classics and by the classics of course we mean greek, yes. Roman, Asian, greek and roman literature and culture does that still work in oh your- yes 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 um so i did liberal arts at university so i did 
classics, English and art history. And I hate this idea that you're forced to choose one subject when you finish your A-levels or you have to divide up the arts because for me, they all work alongside each other and mm. music and art, they deal with the same themes. Um, mm. And often these creatives were working in tandem with each other or responding to one another. But for me, the, the classics I love because I love the stories, the Odyssey, you know, Odyssey's going on these wild travels. I always say he's like the James Bond of the classical world, <laughs> sleeping with all the nymphs. It's just great. I just think it's just great stories and the mythology. And you can see then how it's inspired so many artists and it still does today. Even at Freeze, walking around at the weekend, a lot of the contemporary paintings and sculpture was based on classical mythology. Absolutely. So, that always surprises me and it surprises the students. I was taking them around Freeze and we were at Victoria Miro and I said, oh, Chris Ophelia is one of her artists at another YBA. And, uh, you know, in, two, in, in the National Gallery, of course, he, he was one of three British artists that were asked to uh, create their own works based on Ovid's, the ancient Roman poet's Metamorphoses. And uh, he did a whole series on Metamorphoses. And, and also you were talking earlier about not liking to divide the arts up. What was amazing about that whole exhibition is that those artists also did ballet designs and they, uh, music was composed for the Royal Ballet to do ballets of the, the, the great stories from Ovid. Um, so it was, a, it was a truly kind of like multi-meet, you know, or multi-art uh, event, which was wonderful. And the only book you could, you could purchase from the bookshop, they didn't have a catalogue deliberately. So you buy a book of contemporary poetry by British poets who've done their own translations from Ovid. Uh, so... And it's one of the great examples in the new millennium of a, of, a, of a gallery putting on something that involved all the performing arts and the yeah. visual arts and so on. And that's sort of, I, I agree with you. That's all coming from the classical world, you know. Um, and you look at work even by people like Damien Hurst, and, and, and a lot of it is actually even named after classical figures or Mark Quinn's, you know, Saren Spence. Oh, yeah. On, yeah. That's um, true. And I wonder as well if all these artists during the pandemic, because they've been locked down, <laughs> instead of responding to you know, other artists in the studio, they've had to look back a bit through art history and back to the classics. And that's where we're seeing more of this work now. I thought maybe that, that think, might be a reason. I think that's quite true. And I, I, I think I suspect people who are reading a lot more and, you know, as you say, returning to, to, to even classics either in translation or in the original um but but um have you found that i always found classics as a as the only really true interdisciplinary subject like classical studies you know where you're studying history philosophy yeah. literature and you can also study through different lenses so with, you know the, the, my first um, encounters with feminist critique was actually in classics you know um so do you, and i think it helps you to think very laterally which i think is very Absolutely. useful you know, in, in and also it demands if you're doing the language side of things, the, the the Latin and the Greek, it demands an awful lot of logic. And I mean, for me, I found that really difficult because I've got a creative brain. Yeah. So to then be translating, I found it incredibly difficult. And actually, one of my tutors told me, Ruth, I don't think you should be doing this subject. You should probably do something a bit easier, like art history. <laughs> so I thought, well, oh, do you know what? I think I will. <laughs> and it's not easier. Exactly. <laughs> Exactly. Um, yeah, it's like I, I was. I always warn my students that the art world is not an easy world, and you're, you're, you know, we're going to now. I think maybe talk about some of your work in the, you know, moving into careers. But you know, one of the things I always warn the students is that the art world is twenty four seven. It's not an easy. It's not an easy option. Um, so, so maybe you could say something about um, maybe some some of the highlights of your career to date. 
you know, and then we can perhaps talk about what you're doing now at the, the Sotheby's Institute of Art. But yeah. can you talk a, bit, a little bit about any kind of highlights in in the lead up to where you are now? Well, I guess we mentioned the asterisk earlier. I do. Yeah. I, I'll always remember the day when I've been on a, a tube across London and got an, a voicemail from the director saying, "Can you call me back?" And my hands were shaking, and I I, call, I called her back immediately, and she said, "Oh, we'd like to offer you the job to oh, be wow. educated." officer at the museum and the team there were just four or five of us so I managed the whole education program from you know babies coming in and family art days to youth groups and partnerships with actually Sotheby's was one of the groups who would come in for a tour and I'd talk about the collection and I loved that job um it was my first opportunity working in the museum meeting so many interesting people so yeah, that was definitely a highlight. And then from there, I went to work at the small dealership, Connaught Brown in Mayfair. Mm-hmm. So we specialised in modern master and impressionist paintings there. And um, a highlight for me was we had a Chagall painting in and needed to authenticate it. And my role there was I was a gallery assistant and researcher. And my role was to, you know, find out what was this Chagall real we thought it was but you had to get authentication from the family you do hmm. so I had to take this Chagall to Paris on the Eurostar <laughs> and I carried it tucked it under my arm got it on the Eurostar on the 6 30 a.m of St Pancras and took it on the tube on the metro in Paris across to the Chagall family home went up the staircase delivered it and then had to wait nervously all day to see if they'd authenticate this picture or not and in the meantime I went to the Musée d'Orsay I had a glass of wine (laughs) I had a lovely day in Paris and then luckily they said yes you know congratulations it is fine it's real we're going to send you a a certificate and there I had to go pick it up and bring the Chagall back to London that's yeah. A brilliant day out. <laughs> if they decided, for example, it was a fake or forgery, did they have a right to destroy it? Um, because yes. I know the Bildenstein in Paris will do that. It's a risk you take. Yes. The Chagall family, they will destroy it if it's not real because they don't want it in circulation anywhere. And actually, um, a guy did take his Chagall, what he thought was a Chagall, onto fake or fortune, and they ended up destroying it. I think they burned it um, with all his millions of pounds, which he'd invested in what was a fake. Yeah. yeah, you've got to be careful with the Chagalls. <laughs> yeah, and uh, well, of course, one of the um, teaching tools in in, Suther- in Suther's Institute, where we now both work, is the Cadell collection. And Cadell, uh, to for, for listeners' sakes, uh, you know, he he worked at Sotheby's um, for for several decades uh, after I think after World War Two, and uh, he he collected the fakes and forgeries that clients would just leave behind because the moment they realized they were fake or forgery they just said oh you keep it so they're not particularly obviously expensive objects but there are some mice and fakes and so on there and that that's a very very useful sort of teaching tool uh for you know for our students um yeah so um i didn't know about that yeah room oh well fakes, yes it's down there in the basement <laughs> down there in the basement and it's 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 all locked up but it's on display um and uh you know we the I think the students and some of the staff have written a catalogue for it. Uh, oh, one, um, um, uh, I think it was Liz Bogdan, a, a colleague uh, who, who uses the collection a lot. She says that they now begin to think that some of them are not fakes, uh, oh. which I always explain to my students is interesting because it's a bit like history. It's never cut and dried. People will suddenly yeah. take their minds about something. So, uh, you, you know, you can get that even with fakes and forgeries and authenticity that mm. some 
realise actually this is okay, you know, they got it kid oh. it wrong. <laughs> well, if I don't turn up for work, you know where I am and the, the painting's gone missing. <laughs> uh, yeah, and um and then I actually I do remember one of the things that stood out when I was looking at your um your profile is uh, is this this interview you had a, on, on you, you joined a TV programme. Was it was it breakfast television? Can you say oh, about that? Yes, <laughs> yes. Um, yeah, I was telling someone about this yesterday, actually, because what what happened was I'd written the catalogue for an exhibition about the painter Eric Tucker, who passed away in 2018, and he was a self taught painter, an untrained labourer in Warrington. He's been dubbed Warrington's Secret Lowry. And when he passed away, his family found 500 paintings in his house, in the shed, under the stairs, in his attic. So they invited me up to take a look and I wrote the catalogue and um, supported with valuing these works. And I mean, the news story just took off. And I got this phone call from BBC Breakfast producer on Friday lunchtime saying, Oh, would, would you like to come up to Salford and talk about Eric's work tomorrow on breakfast TV? And I said, um, no, thanks, because I just thought, how terrifying. I don't want to do that. That sounds horrible. But then after I put the phone down, I thought, oh, how can I turn that down? It's a great story. People need to know this story and I know it. And this is something I can talk about confidently. So I called the producer back and I said, oh, actually, I will come if that's OK. And she said, yes, great. Um, and I think it's a good lesson, really, in doing things that make you scared and taking risks and pushing yourself out of your comfort zone. And I think for me that it was a great moment because after appearing there, I got contacted by ITV News and I did a segment for them on Lowry, got contacted by Sky Arts and I've been on their programme since then. And that, I think, has also helped me secure my book deal, the book I've just written um, called Muse, which mm-hmm. does bring in the classics. So I think, you know, that that big moment when I, I could have said, no, I'm very, very happy now that I said yes to that. That's brilliant. And uh, we'll we're obviously talk about your book late, later in the in the pod. Um, yeah, I, I had a similar um, experience where I'd, I'd written a, an academic article about Botticelli's Venus and Mars in the National Gallery. And uh, I, I I was then, it appeared in the... It, it's a long story, actually, which is your story today, and I'll, I'll probably tell it on another podcast. But basically, it involved appearing in the Times quite controversially, and then wow. the American radio, you know, wanted to interview me in in, in <laughs> Book House in London and Canadian radio, and 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 so on and so on. It's quite scary, isn't it? But I, I, yeah. I think you probably we probably both say to 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 our students and students anywhere, don't be scared, go and do it because yeah, it do it. things, and you have a story to tell, and just. Just pretend that you're talking to your family or your friends, <laughs> you know. Yeah, prepare. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Pre- definitely prepare. And think. And I'd also say someone gave me some good advice. Think of, you know, what are the three key messages which you would want the viewer, the, the viewer or the listeners to take away for yeah. any sort of media appearance so I, or any presentation, actually. What are the three main points which you want people to take away? And I, I've always taken that advice since then, really. Yeah, it's it's always it's already coming across, Ruth, that you have this incredible empathy with 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 other people, and 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 you know you were talking at, at the Estre that it was it was lovely to be able to sort of bring families even with babies in and and, and yeah. show them protection. So is is this something in yourself which made you interested and apply for the the 
the job as uh, careers head of careers at Sotheby's Institute of Art. Do you want to say why, you know, why yeah. you went in for that, and, and and maybe say something about your experience to date? Yeah. Well. I think a happy life is one spent helping other people and not just focusing on yourself and looking inwards. But I get great joy from helping other people. And I got an email, you know, a couple of weeks ago from a student who I'd helped get an internship at Freeze Art Fair. And she emailed me saying she got the position. And for me, that made my week. That how lovely is that? Just great to see her going off and she's taking the next step in her goal to work in the arts. So that's what makes me happiest helping other people and if it's helping them somewhere in the art world then even better so what happened well I wasn't actually looking for a job at the time because I was writing this book I'm extremely busy but a friend sent me a a link on it was on LinkedIn just saying oh do you know anybody who might be interested in this job head of head of careers running an arts specialist career service I went well, I think I might be interested in that it looks like a fantastic job working in London in the heart of the the art world and then I found out it was at Sotheby's Institute and I thought wow brilliant yeah I'm throwing my hat in that ring so then two days later I had the interview and was offered the position and it's yeah a bit of a dream really just wonderful to be advising students on careers and setting up these internships always having meetings with you know London Art Fair came in today and gave a talk to the students feels great to be at the heart of things um I'm really loving working here and the, the students as well you know David they're very international and I think that's really nice because they've got just so many interesting backgrounds and stories as well that they bring I agree entirely and I always say for new students you know please go and talk to one another you know mm. don't talk to people from all over the world because you'll all be working with them in the future and uh, they've all yeah. got they've all got their own stories to tell and and, and of course I suspect the other thing that's that for, for you is that it's not just uh, putting you know looking after these students but also you know making continuing to make your own contacts and exciting contacts in the art world um and I, I i know just before you took the job as you've already hinted at uh that you 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 were um finishing writing a book i, I think it's your first book so so yeah. can you tell can you tell us about the genesis of the, of the book idea and how it came to fruition yeah so well what happened was I had another book idea and I was just about to get this smaller, a smaller book, I'd say, and a smaller publisher had just agreed to publish it. But then the pandemic hit and they they pulled out. Mm. So I just agreed to go part time at work as well to write this book. So I was pretty upset. And and what happened was I I sent a message, a message to an assistant editor at um, Penguin, who I knew. And I just said, this is the situation. I'm really upset. You know, what would your advice be? Should I send it to another publisher? And she said, well, I, I think actually from a business point of view, you need to try and think of a book that would appeal to a bigger audience than the first one I thought of. And that's when I, I I was sitting on this idea about, you know, true stories behind paintings. And it's something I'd written about various times before. And an editor had asked me not to use the word muse. And I thought, oh, interesting. It has become this dirty word, really, in the art world. And Jonathan Jones, the Guardian's critic, he said, well, we should just cancel that term. It's very old fashioned. But in my research and in writing these articles, I realised, well, Actually, these muses have been 
so momentous and changed art history we can't just cancel the term actually we need to take a proper look at what the role of the muse is so I went back to this assistant editor and I said well I do have an idea for a book all about this concept of the muse and if we go back to the classical muses they were you know divine agents who poets and artists and writers they relied on them so how did we get from that to then this idea of passive women taking their clothes off for an older male artist who's written those narratives and actually does the story need to be retold so that then became Muse and uh, over the last year I've been writing this and there's 30 chapters and each tells the story of a different Muse from the Renaissance to today and it shows the true role of the Muse and also that Muses are more diverse than we think they're not all young women there are, you know, young black men from the streets of New York in there as well. And I've interviewed them and asked them, what's it been like for you to be someone's muse? And often the answer is, well, actually, it's been really empowering. Great for me to be represented on the walls of the museum. So, yeah, it's been the it's, it's honestly been such an amazing journey, this muse book, mainly because of the stories and the people I've met along the way. That's fantastic. So it sounds to me as though you've you've taken that that. Uh that word muse and kind of like deconstructed it and realized that yeah. there's a lot of power behind it as well. As you say, going back to the classical world where these figures are very yeah. powerful uh, women, I think they're all women, aren't they? The muses. Um, yeah, all women. And, and, uh, although I know that they're under the protection of Apollo is kind of the, the bringer mm. of culture to, 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 to human beings, but the muses are, are, are all the aspects of that. I guess, and uh, but but it's, as you say, it's kind of as as the patri- patriarchal cultures uh, redeveloped from the Renaissance to the present day. It, it, the, the term was used for almost like sex objects, like we we think very much yes. of though in particular. Uh, and, well, I think it, there was this idea came about really that you know to have and possess a muse as an as a male artist, it was sort of a sign of power, really, and. <laughs> Particularly people like Picasso were constructing this narrative, oh, you know, I have all these muses because I am a great artist. And then art historians sort of continued this narrative. Mm-hmm. And it, it's, un, it's untrue and it's in, imbalanced. Um, yeah. we, if we, you look at it from the, from the point of view of the muse, it's a completely different yeah. story. And, They'd say, um, well, hang on a minute. Well, you know, Dora Maar, when it comes to Guernica, it, Picasso paints it in black and white because she'd introduced him to photography. Exactly. Oh. <laughs> We can't wait to read it. So is, is it? <laughs> it is out April 7th, the date I know well now. It's in my diary. Um, April 7th, 2022. Um, you can pre-order it now from Birmingham Museum and Art Gallery and copies will be signed. Uh, so it's my local museum, 10 minutes walk of my house. Um, yeah. And the publisher yeah. Penguin. And the, pu- the publisher is, so Penguin Random House and the imprint is Square Peg Books slash Vintage Books. Brilliant. So, yeah, dream come true, really. To be so again, it's a little bit of serendipity that came out of um, a, a, a very negative event when you when you lost the first book and uh, given up your job to write. And just a chance mm-hmm. call to a friend then led eventually to what, yes. what sounds like a great book. <laughs> Yeah, and, and you know that that assistant editor, I'd once helped her get an internship in the publishing house, and I think you know it's like good karma coming back to me. If you throw kindness and goodness out into the world, I think it does come back to you. And I say this to the students, you know, build those 
networks in a meaningful way and you know act with integrity and people will remember that and i think absolutely people, no, i think people, people are what drive the arts so. absolutely and again with again with your current role as a careers person it's not just giving that a lot will come back to you as well i'm sure and i think it's also acting as a role model for the students that they realize that you know it's good to be good to other people as well it always yes. works very well in the art world in my experience and um, just coming back to the book i was just going to ask you about research um because I know some of I, I know some of our students will probably be listening to this. So, uh, in, in you know, and they're going to be writing dissertations and research mm. within the art world. Um, can you say something about the sources you use? Was it all from books? Yeah. Hmm. So I wrote the majority of it during the pandemic. So you know, accessing libraries was incredibly difficult. But I did luckily a friend of mine is a librarian and he managed to smuggle books out of a, a library. So yes, I read an awful lot of books for each chapter uh, by the secret, you know, railroad, I guess, um, between Wolverhampton and Birmingham. I also read a lot of articles, journal articles by academics who obviously know a lot more than I do. And then I spent a lot of time consulting journals and diaries and letters. So this primary source material of artists and muses. And then, of course, when it came to the contemporary artists and muses, I interviewed them. So I interviewed Tim Walker, photographer. I interviewed Lucian Freud, muse Sue Tilly, about what it was like to post for him. I interviewed, um, she's called Pixie Lau, this Chinese photographer who, she she photographs her boyfriend, Morrow, naked in their apartment, rolled up like he's a piece of sushi. So I asked him, what you know, why did you do that? What was that like? And what impact did that have on your real relationship? So a mix of, a mix of sources, but really trying to find out from the muses' perspective what that role meant to them and what impact it had on them. And, and selecting the muses that that, that are, is each chapter a different. Yeah. How, each chapter is a different muse. Yeah. yeah. How did you do that? Just through some basic re- general reading and picking out figures and thinking that sounds interesting. Well, there are seven sections to the book because I really wanted to make the point that the muse is not always a young romantic heroine figure um so there's a section on family muses so you know the father is the muse for a japanese photographer i've got a section on performers as muses and you know what they bring to the role if they are already say grace jones is one of the muses who had a collaboration with keith herring so what does she bring to the role given you know her talents as a performer and songwriter so each of the sections looks at a sort of different category of news. And also, you know, my editor was, has been brilliant. And together we discussed different muses and we're really making sure that we reflected muses, not just from Western art history, but, you know, across the world. So that was another consideration for us. And also then to choose muses from the Renaissance to today. So also spanning that completely different time context and how that's, influence the role as well is it illustrated and yeah it's illustrated by the most brilliant artist Dina Razin she is a Syrian artist now based in Portugal and she's done the front cover and she's also done one illustration for each of the muses and I feel like she has 
just breathe life into them and the illustrations are just absolutely stunning and I can't I just can't wait for people to see this book I think it's a so the illustrations aren't like photographs or paintings and works of art by the muses or of them. It, they're actually, it's actually a like creative yes. illustration. A, yeah, it's a contemporary illustration. And each of the illustrations got layers of detail. So say with Dormar, I'm talking about Guernica and her photography, as well as her own surrealist art. The illustration brings all of these into this new, new artwork of Dormar sh- showing these different aspects to her personality. Absolutely. Yeah. Oh, well, and um, are you going to have some kind of launch event or is that not organised yet? Oh, yes, there will be a launch and you'll be invited. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Well, I've just secured an exhibition which is going to take place in Mayfair between February and April. And there will be a a, a proper book launch and events programme at this space and we're also going to be yeah showing work by some of the contemporary artists and muses in the book we'll be inviting them to give talks Dina is flying over from Portugal to be here and she'll be talking about the illustrations so yeah there will be a, a launch and a whole program of events and so is the and connected to the book yeah so it will be called Muse and wow. it's all Brings it all brings it all to life in an exhibition. So it's a, a muse a muse takeover of London. <laughs> that sounds tremendous. Maybe I could do some. Maybe we could do some side events and take people to the British Museum and talk about muses in antiquity and so on. <laughs> there right. you go. Definitely, I'd love that. <laughs> we can organise it absolutely. <laughs> yeah, and so um, coming to the end of, of the pod. Ruth, um, maybe you could just say a few words about your spirit. You know, you, you've spoken about writing during the pandemic. Is that what kept you sane and alive and excited? Or, you know, what do you think about the pandemic and the way it affected the art world? And, and, and where do you think we're going from here in the art world? Mm. Great question. For me, the pandemic gave me, honestly, an opportunity to sit still a bit because the art world is very fast paced and there's lots going on and I love to go to all the openings and shows but it gave me that opportunity to sit down and write 90,000 words and do the research and to take some time I think to to think, to reflect, which we don't always do in this really fast-paced world. I think coming out of the pandemic, we've seen actually how important the arts are to us all. The arts are what kept many of us going through the pandemic. Me especially, not just writing, but painting or, you know, watching great films, listening to music. So I think people, there's a newfound appreciation for the arts. So I, I hope that continues. I hope, you know, this value for the arts and perhaps more funding for the arts that, you know, that would be great to see. Um, And I think as well, people now are seeing there's opportunity for change in the art world. Everything seems up for grabs a little bit. So I'm saying to the students and young graduates, there's opportunity here to make some changes in the art world. It's a great time to get out there, you know, with the skills that perhaps traditional galleries don't have to, put on digital events or work with technology in new ways, create immersive exhibitions. I think there's a lot of change happened and I'm I'm looking forward to seeing what happens next in the art world. It's exciting. I think we all are. 
so thank you very much, Ruth, for joining us on the podcast today and very much looking forward to the launch of your book next year. Uh, so, Thanks for having um, me. <laughs> <laughs> See you later then. Bye. Thanks, David. Bye.